Thank you. <laughs> Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for allowing us to see another day, Father God. Thank you that we were able to freely come and worship in the house of the Lord. Thank you that you know each of us by name. You know every hair on our heads or the hair we used to have and every tear that we have ever shed. Even though we may not see you with our eyes, we believe your word in Matthew 1.23 that says you are Emmanuel, God with us. Father, please refresh those that are weary and heavy burdened. Heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. I pray that you strengthen those that are weak. Help those in turmoil and draw very close to all that need emotional healing. Dearest Jesus who wept at the death of your friend and taught that they who mourn shall be comforted, grant comfort in your presence to those who've lost loved ones. May they know your grace is sufficient this day, this hour, and moment by moment. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem as it is written in Psalms 122.6. May all the people in the Middle East put their trust in you, Yeshua. Lord, I pray for a divine outpouring of the Holy Spirit worldwide to bring people to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to bring ultimate peace. Lord, we do pray for those with health challenges. May they remember your promise in Matthew 11.28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Protect them from Satan's lies and discouragement. Continue to be with them. Strengthen them. Uphold them with your righteous right hand. And Lord, give the doctors your insight and wisdom how to help them. I pray that all of our children and future generations would flee from evil desires and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, enjoying the company of children who call on the Lord and have pure hearts, as written in 2 Timothy. I pray they will hear only your voice and follow you rather than being entangled with TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and other social media and peer pressure, Lord. Church, let's put aside this past week's distractions and distractions from this morning and prepare our hearts and mind to hear the word of God that he has given to our pastor, Tim. We bless your name, Lord. We glorify your name, and we thank you for being a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering, covenant-keeping, miracle-working God. In the mighty name of King Jesus, amen and amen. Amen, and thank you, Miss Myra. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. So that is fifth grade and under. They can make their way outside into the uh, lobby and meet their teachers up there. I'll draw your attention to this um, little sheet. Our bulletin has lots of important information for you this morning, there's a handful of important things I want to draw your attention to. First is the men's breakfast coming up in a couple of weeks. That's February the 17th, and we'll have a special guest speaker for that morning, and we'd love to have you join us. Um, men, if you haven't been there before, please come. Uh, bring your, your high school, middle school sons. We'd love to have them as well, and uh, we'll hear a word from the Lord together and just in, enjoy some fellowship. Uh, then the following weekend is uh, If Gathering, our women's ministry event, and that is the 23rd and 24th of February. You can sign up for that on the church app right now, and the way that works is the first 30 people to sign up, it's a free registration, and then after that we have to charge for the registration. So it is a, it is a charged event, the church is paying for it, but if you are one of the first 30 to sign up, then you can get into one of those free spots and uh, so make note of that and sign up on the church app if you haven't already. The timing for that is Friday night, 7 to 
and Saturday 10 to 5.30, 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. on Saturday. So it is a long event, but even if you can just make it for part of it, you will enjoy it. We're inviting um, some women in our community to, to join us as well, so we'll have some non-church people here, so invite some friends from outside the church to be a part of that live stream women's ministry conference. And then uh, finally, the last thing to draw your attention to this morning is our congregational meeting, which is Sunday after that, on uh, the final Sunday in February, uh, the February the 25th. That will be our chili cook-off competition, chili, so come at 5.30, we'll have the cook-off first. You can enter in your pot of chili by signing up again on the church app, and we'll first eat together, then we'll have some childcare, and we'll have the meeting after we eat all the chili that we want, and we see who the winner is, that sort of thing. So I'm going to pause. I give you three updates, and I'm going to ask you, if you, if you do not have the Church Center app, go to your app store and download the Church Center app. It's not called Fellowship Bible Church. It's called Church Center. And then once you download it, you'll get to the screen where you'll see you can select a church logo that looks just like ours, just like the top of this sheet there. And if you go into the bottom right-hand corner where it says more, you can click to sign up. And all of those three things that I said, as well as a couple of others, are available now on the sign-up page. And so if you, if you don't have that Church Center app, if everything I said was super confusing just now, then find a staff member after the service, and we'll help you get, get set up on that app, because it's a great way to connect with the church, to connect with ongoing events. You can find information about small groups on that app as well. Everyone needs to have it and needs to check it. These things are important. But they mostly direct your attention into those sign-up sheets where we really want you to, um, to connect that way as well. So as we're talking about If Gathering, we're going to show a promo video from the national organization that puts on this event to just give you a better idea of the theme of what If Gathering is all about this year. This year, our theme at If is because of Jesus. So much is happening in our world and we know that the hope and the joy and the peace that we have is because of Jesus and we want to invite the world into that. In fact, this year at IF, we are going to go live all around the world. In the past, we've reached over 176 countries and you are the reason why. So we're going to look at the moments of Jesus' life and remember how sweet and dear he is. When life gets chaotic, it is so good just to set your eyes on him. And so our theme verse this year is simply John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. We are going to look at the light of the world. We are going to celebrate the light of the world, the light that brings hope, that brings peace, that brings comfort, that brings a future. And the verse goes on to say, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life and we know that that means not in our circumstances our, our circumstances can be dark and yet we still walk in the light there is hope because of Jesus so come be a part of this story with us do not miss it it is going to be the biggest announcement we've ever made we are so excited about what God is doing in the world and we want to share and invite you in to something unbelievable truly we want you to invite everybody you know we want you to invite the people that know God, the people that don't. We want you to bring them into your homes, into your churches, into your dorm rooms, and we want to see God move in the women of our generation. Now, if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to reflect this morning on what the Scripture says to us about rest. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. When I was in high school, I was with a group of guys that we established this in annual tra tradition where we would every year go into East Tennessee and we would spend a week in backpacking. Most of these guys were connected to my church. My youth pastor was one of them. He was kind of the ringleader of the whole thing. And we spent the weekend usually on the same trail at the Savage Gulf State Park there in East Tennessee. And what we would do is we would get out of school on a Friday, make the drive over from West Tennessee. We'd hike in just a short hike on Friday night, get to our camp, usually be setting up camp in the dark. And then 
on Saturday morning, it was like the highlight of the weekend. Because Saturday morning, you know, with guys, you have to make it a little bit more of an adventure than it is. You have to do something to get guys out of bed on a Saturday morning. And so what we did is we made this whole thing into a competition. And it sort of developed naturally at, at first because we found this great backpacking um, route that we would take that would be a Friday hike in, Saturday hike, and then Sunday hike out. Two nights in the woods. It was great the first couple times, low stress. But then we found something. We found this cabin on the Saturday night of the hike. And here's what we discovered. That one of the campsites at the Savage Gulf Park there is called Hobbs Cabin Campsite. And the way Hobbs Cabin works is it's a primitive cabin that has like six or eight bunks, something like that, has a, has a fireplace, and it is a first-come, first-served campsite. And so if you're the first group to get there, you get the cabin. And if you're not the first group to get there, then you're out of luck, and you end up setting up tent sites like everybody else. And so what happened is one year, accidentally, this group of guys, I wasn't even there the first, the first year, one year this group of guys... Um, accidentally got the cabin. They're like, man, that's really nice. Like we set up tents in the dark on Friday night, then we hiked all day on Saturday, and we got there, and we got the cabin, and they didn't have to set up tents at all. So then they're like, man, we're going to do this every year. So then the second year, I was on the trip. We didn't get the cabin because we learned, hey, this cabin isn't just there for the taking. It's a first-come, first-served thing. And so when you don't get the cabin, you recognize how fun the cabin is. Because then you've been hiking all day on Saturday, and not only do you have to cook your own meals over the fire, and you have to get out all your little stoves, and you, you have to set up your whole camp. You have to set up all these tents. And you're like, man, it'd be really nice if we had that cabin. So then year three, it's like, boys, we ain't missing that cabin this year. We're getting up. We're, we're not only setting up our camp Friday night in the dark, we are packing up Saturday morning in the dark, and we are going to hit that trail as soon as they let us, or maybe a little bit sooner than we should have based on the ranger's advice, but we're going to hit that trail at dawn, and we're going to hike, and we're not going to stop, and we're going to get that cabin, because when you get to the cabin, you recognize it's worth it. So every year we have these, these new guys that are like, why are we getting up at five o'clock in the morning? Why are we doing this? Like, can't we sleep and get to the cabin? But, there, but this, this cabin became legendary, okay? Because the hike on Saturday was like straight uphill. It was a significant elevation gain. Friday night's hike was super easy. It's literally hiking from a parking lot like a mile in to the, to the campsite. And, and the new guys, they think that's hiking. Because day one, they're like, oh, yeah, man, I'm tired. I'm setting up my camp, and it's been a long day. I was at school, then I sat in a van, and now I'm hiked a mile. But then on Saturday, it's like, no, no, we're hiking uphill the whole way. And when you get to the cabin, and you don't have to pull that tent out, and especially if it's raining or if it's cold, because there's always a little bit of a risk of that, it's like, man, there is nothing like a 40-degree night in the rain, and you're sitting in the cabin, and all those other jokers are out there setting up their tents. That's a reward. And so when I think back of rest, on this concept of rest after a long day, this Hobbs cabin in Savage Gulf State Park still has this mythical place in my mind where there was such great reward for a job well done where the early bird catches the worm, right? And the early hiking group gets the cabin, and then you get to sit there and snicker in the warmth and in the dryness while everybody else is setting up their tents. And it was something that the, the first-timers, they never quite got until we get there. But then if there's a year where people do like we do and get up at dawn and try to race to the cabin, you know again how rich it is to get the cabin when you're the ones setting up the tent and not getting the cabin. This passage is all about entering into rest and really, truly understanding what that rest could be. Rest after full exertion. Rest 
after a period of exhaustion. And the rest in this passage is so multidimensional, it gets confusing. I'm not going to lie. These 13 verses give us all sorts of different aspects of what this rest is that the author of Hebrews is talking about. So it's easy to get confused. When is this rest? What is this rest? Is he talking about the Sabbath? Is he talking about the rest of entering into the promised land at the end of the long journey of the exiles? Is he talking about the rest that we find in Jesus, our ultimate spiritual rest? Is he talking about God's rest when God created and on the seventh day he rested? Or is he talking about that final eternal rest in our heavenly home, the new kingdom? The answer is there's echoes of all of those aspects of rest within this one passage. But this passage is so unique because it's all about rest and all about the beauty of rest. And see, we, brothers and sisters, we have to know what work is to know what rest is. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning belaboring the point of what work is because I hope, I hope we're tired enough I hope you've worked enough, you have strained enough to know and long for what real rest is. The way a group of high school boys was longing for Hobbs Cabin. I always tell young people that you have to do one job that you just absolutely hate. It's good for you. You will not ever appreciate the job that you work until you do a job that you absolutely hate and exhausts you and feels like monotony or just pure hard work. And so one definition of rest from my perspective is the Hobbs Cabin long day of hiking, but the other, perhaps even more concrete, is you don't know what real exhaustion is until you've pulled a double shift at Chick-fil-A open to close. That's a part of my makeup too. If you haven't worked 5.30 to 10.30 at a Chick-fil-A restaurant frying chicken all day, at 460 degrees, like rest is something different at the end of that day. And so today, we're talking about rest. So I hope you came in a little bit tired. I hope you came in a little bit weary, a little bit heavy laden with the cares and concerns of this world, because we're going to talk about rest. But there's this really cool shift that happens in this passage because while the whole thing is all about rest, there's a command at the end. And the command is about striving and effort. So we'll get there. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. I'm just going to read through the whole passage to start us. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we, have we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this same passage, he says, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, I love this sentence, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this is the word of the Lord, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. This passage gives us a portrayal of rest full of warning. Let us fear so that we don't find ourselves not entering it. And let us strive that we may enter it. So the first step, we're we're, going to go through this passage in, in two key steps. The first step, we're going to spend some time defining the rest we're talking about. And then we're going to close by pulling out the three key exhortations from these verses and see what it is that we're supposed to do in light of all that God has said about rest. So first, let's spend some time defining this rest. And as I said, it's complex because there's all these these, um, aspects of it. There's all these different characteristics of what the rest is that he's talking about. So first, we're going to go through the, the 13 verses relatively quickly and just pull out a few things. We, we've got a list of 10 followed by a list of five, okay? A list of 10 that are just the, the 10 basic things that we see here in this passage, and then the five key characteristics that this rest represents for us. So first, the list of 10. In verse 1, the first thing we see about this rest is that you can fail to enter it, okay? So that's the whole context of the passage, all right? The reason that the author of Hebrews is here talking to us about rest is because he is worried that some in his original audience, and therefore some in us as an audience 2,000 years later, may fail to enter into this rest. So this is a rest you can fail to reach. The goal is, let's all get there. And number two, in verse two, the good news doesn't benefit everyone. The good news doesn't actually achieve a benefit for all that hear the good news. That's what verse 2 says. It is of no benefit to them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the key aspect of those that heard the good news that didn't enter into the rest is that they didn't do anything about it. They heard the news of how to get to the rest, but they didn't actually put into practice what they heard. They didn't listen to the point of faith and acting on the news that they had heard. Who are those that enter the rest? We see in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. So that's our, our third point, that you must believe in order to actually achieve and enter that rest. That is the condition. Hearing is not the condition. Hearing results in some people entering and some people not, because the difference is whether you believe and act on what you've heard or not. Verse 4, though, brings out a totally different, it feels like a curveball. Verse 4 brings out a different aspect of the rest. God rested. And so now we're not just talking about the rest that we receive, because it seems like we're talking about a rest that is salvific, a rest that is based in our salvation in Jesus. But now we're all of a sudden talking about God's rest. So it adds a different layer to our understanding. Verse 6 gives us our fifth characteristic. Again, in this passage he said, or sorry, verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So in one sense we see Those that enter are those that believe. In another sense, those that don't enter are those that disobey. Okay, so so get this. Disbelief and disobedience are the same thing. That's what this passage just led us to. The, The ones that enter believe. The ones that don't disobey. That means that to believe is to obey and to disbelieve is to disobey and therefore not enter. So belief and obedience are going 
hand in hand. You can hear the good news. You can know lots of stuff in your head and still not believe enough to do anything about it, to act in what you have done, and therefore the result is disbelief and disobedience. Our goal in the Christian life is not knowledge. Our goal is belief that leads to obedience. Uh, number six, in verse seven, we see Joshua and David all of a sudden, because he is quoting from Psalm 85, quoting the same passage that he quoted from in last week's passage, this Psalm 85, which is an important psalm for Old Testament Israel. And in this psalm, he is talking about those that will not enter the rest. It's a warning. David says, don't be like the disbelieving generation of the exile. And the author of Hebrews is saying, just like David said, don't be like them back there, don't be like the unbelievers, the disobedient in David's age, or the unbelievers, the disobedient in the wilderness stage. Don't be like them. Be like obedient believers. But the other aspect we learn about this is that there is a future rest beyond what David and Joshua are talking about. So David, this is what's so confusing about this passage. David is pointing backwards. But then the author of Hebrews says Joshua didn't actually give them rest. That's not the rest that was actually being talked about here. Okay? David says, don't be like them that didn't get to enter the rest. And those that didn't get to enter the rest were led by Joshua. And the author of Hebrews says, Joshua didn't actually give them any rest anyway. It was a small picture. So this is what I'm talking about. This is why it's like, what, as you're tracing this and as you're reading through, it would be right for you to ask the question, when is this rest? I don't get the timeline. It was sort of what Joshua did. It wasn't fully what Joshua did. David makes it, sounds like he, make it, makes it sound like he experienced a portion of it, but not all of it. God did some of it. What am I supposed to do of it? Okay, I promise we're getting there. But the rest is future for David and Joshua. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That means it's future for us too, okay? What the author of Hebrews is saying, when he says there remains, not just that it continues, he is saying in verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest we have not yet attained fully. Let me show you why he means it that way. Verses 10 and 11. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest, strive to enter the rest we haven't yet entered into, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So verse 10 says, it goes back to when God rested, and how did God rest? God created the world in six days, and on day seven, he rested. So God worked for six days, and when the work was complete, he rested. So the comparison is pretty clear here. The rest, the ultimate Sabbath rest, which we will receive and experience, is to be held until all the work is done. That's the comparison of 9, 10, and 11 that he's making. So there remains, that means there's still something out in the future of Sabbath rest for us. Verse 12 gives us the ninth point. When the word is active, that's when the rest comes. The word is active in provoking belief, obedience, and rest. This is the crazy thing, guys. That inaction, this is counterintuitive, inaction does not lead to rest. Action leads to rest. Real mental work to understand the gospel and to respond to Jesus, and then physical work in obedience to Jesus, that's what gets us to rest. Being inactive doesn't result in rest. So the activity of the word creates the activity of the disciple, which creates the setting of rest. And then in verse 13, the word exposes us. No one is hidden from his sight. 
all are naked and exposed, and we must give an account. And the account that we give is given as we enter into that rest. So now we've muddied the waters with all these characteristics, and we've got to sort of bring the picture together and understand what it is that we're talking about and how it relates to us. So I'm going to give you five characteristics of biblical rest here in this passage and hopefully give you a more unified view of how we view our discipleship, how we actually follow Jesus in obedience, and what is the place of rest in the past, past, in the present, and in the future in our Christian life. Number one, this biblical rest is patterned in God's creation. Uh, This is a simple point in that we all know that when God created the world, he, it was work. It wasn't hard work for God, but it was impressive work for sure. God spoke the world into being in a matter of days, and, and through his speech created everything that we see. And, and since that time, matter has neither been created nor destroyed. Since God spoke the first matter into being, and it has been rearranging itself ever since according to the, the control of his sovereign hand, over it all. It's magnificent. It's incredible. And we must believe that God was the creating agent behind it all. And then when God was done, when the heavens and the earth were set into motion and all the reproductive processes for plants and animals and every living being, all of those processes were created, God rested. And God rested because the work of creation was done. And so there is an important pattern there that when the work is finished, rest comes. So then the commandment given to the nation of Israel was like it. Work for six days and on the last day, rest. But in the new covenant, in new creation, that, that takes on a different meaning, a different understanding because God establishes this pattern upon which, God, upon which man's life was to be built, that man is to live in the pattern that God sets for creation, okay? There is something that is incredibly frustrating about living in a world that doesn't live by God's patterns. It will frustrate our work. It will frustrate our processes. A seven-day work week is not good for man, It's not good for humanity. It has been actually proven by studies that you can look at the effectiveness of those that work over seven days, that the work weekend was actually good for society, for humanity, for culture and human thriving because man should not work for seven days. Man should rest. And there is a real sense in the patterning of God's creation that when you work all seven days, God allows your seventh day of work to be frustrated. To be frustrated to where even if you work for seven days, the effectiveness is that of six days of work. This is what God has patterned into his creation for us, for our good and for our thriving. So that's the first concept is that rest is patterned in God's creation. If God rests, so therefore should we. And number two, the rest is foreshadowed in Canaan. There's a part of this that is about the promised land. We cannot escape that Hebrews 4 talks about the promised land and talks about the rest that is either being entered into or not being entered into, and that rest is the promised land. This is a theme in the book of Hebrews. It comes out later in 10, 11, and 12 this rest of entering into the promised land. Some enter, some don't. Moses did not. The majority of the generation did not. Only Joshua and Caleb, of the men of that first generation, they were the only adult men that left Egypt and entered into the promised land because everyone else had disqualified themselves in their disbelief and disobedience. That's what this passage is emphasizing. So there is a sense 
in which, just like I told you, this ultimate view of rest in my mind is a long day of hiking uphill on a Saturday morning and entering into Hobbs' cabin and having a nice warm fire with my buddies and just hanging out. That is this incredible idea of rest for me. And so, within the culture, within the foundations of the nation of Israel, the Canaan rest, the promised land rest, was the ultimate demonstration of rest. Because can you imagine? I spent half a day hiking, and I wanted my rest. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And the rest that you receive when you can actually build a permanent home and actually live and build a family in an area and not have to live out of a tent for an entire generation for 40 years. Imagine the beauty of that rest from wandering, rest after a long journey, rest after all of the, the land that could not be cultivated because it wasn't yours and you were there temporarily. To actually plant fields and not have to gather every day of your life to actually establish a home. There is something beautiful about the rest in Canaan that this passage is talking about. So it's patterned in God's creation, it's foreshadowed in Canaan, and it's built into then our work. Notice this subtle thing that happens. In God's creation and in the law that he gives, he commands that people are to work for six days, and then rest on the seventh day. And yet Jesus resurrects on the first day, and something changes. Something changes in our patterns of life. And so, for the 2,000 years since Jesus' resurrection, there have been different camps of Christianity, and some have just completely neglected the Sabbath and said, that's Old Covenant stuff, we don't need to worry about that. And some have said, well, no, the Sabbath is now the first day. It is the day we worship. Jesus was resurrected on the first day, and therefore we rest with our families and with our church community, and we worship on the first day. That is the Lord's day that we give to him. Let me tell you, let me show you why that principle is so important and so beautiful. Even though God doesn't ever actually command the switch of going from the seventh day to the first day, it is a reasonable switch in our understanding of our rest and our understanding of our salvation. Because the principle of work that God patterned in his work was when the work is finished after six days, you rest on the seventh day. Hebrews emphasizes that. God's work was done and therefore you rest. But when you work on the first day, it reorients everything. And it's the same as the principle of the tithe in that way. And it's a beautiful principle. You know, when the people were instructed to give a portion of their proceeds, of their, of their financial resources, of their crops, of, of whatever they had, their livestock, when they were told to give to the Lord, what, what portion were they told to give? A tenth, you, you know that. But which tenth? The first. The first fruits. And so what was given to God was harvested first. And God didn't get the leftovers, the last 10%. God got the first 10% of our financial wealth, of our resources, of our material. God gets the first 10%. And so what we're doing by shifting this Sabbath day of rest from the last day to the first day is the same thing. We're giving God our best. We're giving God our first. And, and what that means, there's a real theological thought there too. Because in the Old Covenant, in the covenant of works, we were to live according to the law and achieve righteousness by the law. And when we sinned, we, we were to offer sacrifices and, and God's people offered sacrifices to reach atonement, to be right with God. But there was work to be done. The New Covenant is different. There are no sacrifices to offer anymore. That has been completed. So we start the week with God's work done. We start the week with the work of creation done. 
And every day that we live, all of our work days, is not for the purpose of achieving and entering into rest. All of our work days, we work in light of what has already been achieved for us. And so we start with rest. We start with rest because we theologically know in our heads that there is nothing we can do to achieve what we have received. There's nothing that we can do to earn what has been gifted to us. And so, we start our week resting in the truth of who God is and what Jesus has granted to us, knowing that all of the work that we have, we'll have time for that. Jesus says, tomorrow has its own troubles, but the troubles of tomorrow wait for tomorrow. And so on Sunday afternoon, when you walk out of the church and you've heard the word of God, what is your, what is your purpose then? Is it to go home and to take a quick nap and then pull up your computer and go through your checklist for what happens Monday morning? Go through, go through your email, see, let me just plan my week, let me make sure I'm organized, let me make sure I have everything that I need to do on Monday morning. I need Monday morning to go well, I've got a lot to do, so let me organize it on Sunday so that my work is more effective on those six days. No, no, no. God says, this is the day of rest. This is the day for me. This is the day for worship. And you don't have to worship by just, by just going to church. You worship by serving. You worship by, by praying, by singing, by, by sitting with your family, enjoying time with your family, building relationships across generations is a part of worship and it's a part of rest. And you can even work a little bit as you rest as long as you're not working in your primary job, you can do the work of going to serve others, which Jesus did on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You can do the work of ministry by serving in the church on a Sunday. You can do the work of service, of evangelizing the lost, feeding the poor, serving those in need, serving a family member or a friend that needs help in their home or help on a car, help in a house. Those are things that are worshipful rest on a Sunday. But the pattern of the world that God has created that we are constantly trying to frustrate in our society because all sorts of careers now require you to work on Sunday. And here's, here's what I need to say about this. It is, not, it is not a sin to take a job that requires you to work on a Sunday but a job that requires you to work on a Sunday then requires you to think hard about what day of rest and Sabbath you are giving to the Lord as well. Because there is a piece of this, okay? Now, as I said, there are multiple different camps within Christianity, and some will say that the ultimate Sabbath rest is in Jesus, and it's not about the day. And what I'm trying to, to show you from this passage is it's, there's five different aspects of Sabbath here, and they all matter, okay? So yes, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Yes, eternity is our Sabbath rest. And yes, there is a pattern in the world in which God created us to work six days and rest another day. And so let's do it all. Let's see all of those as definitions of Sabbath and rest from this passage. So I'm going to tell you that though Man was not made for the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man. The fact that the Sabbath was made for man is a beautiful principle of creation, and you should Sabbath. You should rest. And if you work on Sunday, find another day. Find another day and make it the Sabbath. Make it the day of rest so that you know you are intentionally setting aside time for worship, for family, and for Jesus. So that you don't just come into just another day. That Sunday is another day like any other day. There needs to be a day. And I believe you have some freedom in Christ on which day. But there needs to be a day where you are resting in Jesus and worshiping. Because it was a creation ordinance. It was God's idea and God built it into his creation. But ultimately, it's not just about the day. It's partly about the day, 
right? We have points one, two, and three. This is patterned in God's creation, foreshadowed in Canaan, and built into the work of the world. So the day matters. But then point four, ultimately, this rest that Hebrews 4 talks about finds its fulfillment in Christ. We are slaves with no control over our own work until Christ removes the yoke. When Christ removes the yoke of slavery, then we can enter into the rest of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight, the passage that we should all know by heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So yeah, rest is about Jesus. We see that in this passage, that ultimately this rest is not something that Joshua can lead the people into. That this is not something that, that can be embraced when you cross over the Jordan River and you enter into the promised land. That's not what this is all about. That this is bigger than just one day a week. This is about every day of our lives resting in Jesus. Because here's the principle. Rest is not just built into one-seventh of our work week. That's important. But rest is built into about a third of our days anyway. In order to be healthy, you need to sleep. I mean, maybe, maybe for you it's six hours, maybe it's seven, maybe it's eight. But, but somewhere within 25 to 33% of your day needs to be rest and sleep. God created us with limits, and that's a good thing, because he doesn't have any. And so we are supposed to image God in so many different ways, in our love, in our worship, in our sacrifice, our creativity, our work, all of those things are, are aspects of being created in the image of God and representing Christ. You know where we don't represent Christ's image? Limitlessness because we have them and he doesn't. And if we can't embrace our limits, then we are thumbing our noses at God's good creation of us. He created us to be limited, to work finite hours, to, to, have, to have limits in our understanding, abilities, strengths, and capacities. He created us to need to rest, and not just one out of seven days, but to rest at the end of every day, and it's a good thing. And so ultimately, the rest we find in Jesus allows us to lay down by green pastures every night and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And so you have led me to green pastures for the night. And so I'm gonna close my eyes for the night knowing that I'm resting in you whose yoke is easy and burden is light and whatever tomorrow comes, I will face tomorrow. But tonight, I'm gonna to lie down and rest in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So many of the Psalms are about rest and are about sleep. And we sleep and we rest because Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so, yeah, there's, there's work to be done in the Christian life. But the work, and guys, we're getting there. There's three commands that end this passage. We're getting there. But we have to understand the rest of Jesus first. And finally, point five, is that this rest is not yet realized until the end. Verse nine says, there remains a Sabbath rest. Even the rest you have in Christ where his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that's not the full end of the story because Revelation 14 says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. That is the rest. That's the end of the story. So pictured in, day, in, in week one of creation, day seven, the beginning of time, in creation, we have the story of rest is built in there. And the story of rest, we don't have the end of the story until Revelation 14, when all of us are, have, have died and Christ has come back, and then those who are risen with Christ rest from their labors. 
So if you're still living on this earth, there is something God has for you. Even if you're lonely, even if life hurts, even if you, you feel like you're on your last leg and you think, boy, I, I just wish I could pass in peace, there is a reason God has left you here. There is a purpose God has for you. There is labor, work, worship, prayer, praise, whatever it is. There is something yet for you in this life. Scripture says it. I don't understand it. I can't tell you what his unique calling is for you in all of your days, but I do believe he reveals it to us as we live in faithfulness. And so, restless souls know there is a coming rest. If you're weary, heavy laden, and broken, you can find some rest in Christ. You can find some rest on the seventh day, but you will not find ultimate rest until the end. And we should live like that. We should understand and anticipate that. But in light of all this resting, there are three exhortations here in this passage. Three things that we're supposed to do. Number one, in verse one, it says, let us be careful or let us fear. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So here is the warning. Be careful that you don't know all the right answers. And because you didn't apply the answers, you don't enter into the rest. The uh, one commentator I was reading on this said the fear in this passage is like the fear of a mountain climber who knows in his head that all of his ropes and all of his fasteners, all of his harnesses, they, they will do their job. But the fear is that I'm just going to make sure. I'm going to check my equipment. I'm going to take the extra time. I'm going to look at the details and make sure everything is properly fastened. Everything is there so that I can go out in faith. I can act in faith in these ropes that are going to hold me up because I've taken the time to be careful and double-check. So, so the call for us, be fearful, be careful, that you don't just go through the everyday of the Christian life thinking, I do believe in Jesus. I do believe that I'm a sinner and, and that Jesus needs to save me. But if that belief hasn't led to any sort of change, any sort of action in which you live your life, you pattern your life differently than those around you that don't know Jesus? If that, that belief, that mental assent doesn't lead you to want to know him more, to, to want to re read and understand what you're reading, to want to pray more or be with other believers more or, or sing more or, or do something to serve others more, that desire isn't in you, then be careful. Because if your belief isn't resulting in obedience, if your mental assent isn't resulting in action, then be careful. Because you may not enter that rest. You may be one that names the name of Jesus and doesn't fully follow Jesus because you haven't actually yielded to him. The best way to do this, start putting the Christian life into practice. Start actually serving another person. Start actually praying. And by just repeating the Lord's Prayer or finding a prayer in Scripture, finding a prayer from some great saint of old and repeating somebody else's prayer, see if it does something to warm your heart. Get a simple Bible reading plan. Read through the book of John. Read the life of Christ and see, is my heart warmed by this? Or is this just an empty practice that doesn't seem real? If it's an empty practice that doesn't seem real, be careful. You might not be on your way to rest. You might be on your way to judgment. Look at the people in this passage. They listened, they heard, and it did not benefit them. That's what the passage says about them. They heard all the good news, and it meant nothing for them. They received no benefit. This would be like the person that decides they're going to run a marathon they do all the preparations, 
They sign up. They get the little, little pin with the number on their chest, and they go out there, and they think, I'm going to run a marathon. And then they stop, and they don't reach the finish line. They look like a marathon runner. They got the, they got the little bib. They got the number. They signed up. They paid $100 to run the race that they didn't finish. They got the nice shoes. They got all the right equipment. They did everything to play the part. They got the little fancy gels, and, and, and they, they got all hydrated and everything. But you don't finish the race if you don't actually run the race. You don't enter into rest if you don't actually follow Jesus. And there's so many people, so many Christians, that sign that card of salvation, that maybe come forward and be baptized, and it's just putting on the bib of a marathon runner, getting your number and saying, I'm one of the crowd and I'm going to run this race. But you never follow the finish line because you don't actually follow Jesus. The second command here, exhortation. I love this sentence. There's so much power and meaning in this sentence because at one sense, in one sense it, it, it doesn't make sense he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What is our striving for? Rest. Our striving is not about achievement. It's not about work. It's not about our own reputation and our own praise and storing up all of these spiritual trophies that we get because we led so many people to Christ and we went to the mission field and we fed all of these poor people and look at all these great ministries we led and look at all these books that we wrote and all these sermons that we preached and all the people that came to our church and came to our small group. That's not what we're striving for. We're striving to just enter into the presence of Jesus. And for Jesus to just look, whether you've led a big church or a small church, or you've led one person to Christ that was your grandson, or you've led a thousand people to Christ, whether you've written books that have changed the world, or whether you've just sat in a preschool Sunday school class and loved kids, your striving is to enter into the rest and to hear your Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant." because you actually followed me. And so there is effort here. There's no way around it. The Christian life is not about being sedentary and just riding through the waves of life. There's effort. Get up early. Read your Bible. Pray. Serve somebody. Volunteer in ministry. Love the lost. Intentionally live your life in a way that surrounds yourself with people that are not like you. People that are different from you. Maybe just different from you in, in what you believe, in non-Christians, or maybe people that are different from you in their political convictions, people that are different from you ethnically, people that are different from you in their backgrounds. Surround yourself with people that are different. Strive to live a life that honors Jesus. Strive so that the end will be rest. Because ultimately, we, we must give an account in verse 13. Ultimately, we must give an account to see if the word of God was really sharp and active in our hearts and lives. Because if the word of God is sharp and active in our hearts and lives, then we are being stirred this morning to live lives that are different from the world. To live lives that do not fear the cultural crises of our day that do not fear the rise of, of secularism, that do not fear the ideologies of our day that displease God, that do not fear the rampant sinfulness all around us. Guys, we know it's real. We know how broken the world is. We know how empty the world is. But we will give an account for the answer that we have, the answer that brings hope, the answer that brings meaning. I sat in a car last night with a friend who was telling me about a trip to Las Vegas and just the brokenness of what he saw and what he experienced. The emptiness of people that are searching for something, searching for the wrong things. Las Vegas is almost like a, a, a myth. It's this mythological place that is a parody of all of our worst vices, Sin City in in the fullest sense. 
That is where we go to tap into the worst parts of ourselves. Sex, gambling, materialism, alcohol, all of this debauchery that we are all prone to as sinners, we have a place where we can go and tap into the deepest, darkest parts of it. But guys, we all, we can pick on them. We all have those avenues in our own homes too to go deep into the darkness and to go deep into lives without God, searching for meaning, searching for an answer without him. But we have an answer and we're going to give an account. As the band comes up, the reflection point for this morning is really simple. We have our three exhortations. Be careful, strive, and be prepared to give an account because you will one day, all of us, sit before the throne of Jesus and give an account. Jesus, this is how I followed you or this is how I didn't. And the only answer that really makes any sense is, Jesus, I followed you and it is therefore your righteousness. It is your worth by which I stand before this throne today. It is that whole principle of the Sabbath, of the flip-flop. It's not that we work so that we rest. It's that the work is completed on our behalf so now we can rest. So we can look at him face to face with the Son of God and say, Jesus, I put my faith and confidence in you. And so now, God the Father, I want you to look on your Son for his righteousness. We can be so bold. And that is the only hope we have. So our reflection point for today is in a world gone mad, in a world full of crazy, in a world full of brokenness, we set our eyes on Jesus. And we take great care to be following him first because he is our hope. Let's stand. We'll sing together.